All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 174 of Crow 777 Radio. Today, we're going to be covering the hero's journey. Jason Lingren is with me, and the great Baldini is back. And this will kind of cap off the mythological foundations that we've laid down. But these have been important episodes, and this is no different. Uh, there is nothing new under the sun. We're basically, every time we go to a theater or anywhere else in this world, we're watching the same story get told over and over and over. And that's what's demonstrated with ideas like The Hero's Journey. But there's a lot more to it. And by the time we get into hour two, uh, we'll prove it outright. Anyhow, I hope you'll uh, join us for episode 174 with Jason Lindgren and the great Baldini. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 174. Jason Lingren is with me, and the great Baldini is back. This will be the capstone, uh, so to speak, on the mythical episodes that we've delivered, which have been pretty important for those people who wonder what the basis of false news and things like that might be. We've just shown you um, those should not be questions in your mind anymore. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a fine, rainy good evening to you. So we're going to be going over the hero's journey. And as you will outline, Joseph Campbell's likely the guy who first started to put this together to show that there's nothing new under the sun, that the same program just keeps running over and over and over. And that'll, that will also end up relating to the news um, in certain ways. But what do we have for the intro here? Well, it's time we started pushing these things properly. On October 20th, we're having the Manhattan event which is at 25 West 31st Street, New York, New York, 10001. First up will be John Brisson, then Wayne McCroy, then Mark Devlin. Then we'll be doing a showing of Shoot the Moon, and then we'll be doing a question and answer session afterwards that hopefully you'll be able to take part in. Yeah, there's a good chance I'll be able to. Second of all, I will be doing a workshop presentation at the Flat Earth Conference in Dallas, Texas, November 15th from 1.30 p.m. to 2.20 p.m. is my scheduled slot. And the website for that is fe2019.com. There's going to be a whole pile of people there, so might be very interesting. What the heck, man? Are you trying to say the world's not round? Is that what's going on here? I don't <laughs> know what I'm saying, but what I am going to do is discuss about the social engineering of our perceived reality. Well, there's a there's a side of the barn I'm doubting you will you're not going to miss when you aim at that, but we should also <laughs> mention that the uh, the shooting and the guests for Shoot the Moon in Manhattan, there's going to be limited seating. Uh, Billy Ray Valentine, who has his own radio show on Truth Frequency Radio, is the local contact putting all this together. We'll keep you up to date as we get closer. Anything else or should we get Baldini in here and do this thing? Yes, that's correct. Just to let everyone know, Billy Ray is arranging to have tickets sold, which is supposed to be happening very soon. So we will let you know when we know, but I think we're good to go. Yeah, it's not a massive venue, just so people know. Um, anyhow, welcome, Mr. The Great Baldini. Well, uh, welcome uh, to you guys, and uh, always glad to be here. Always a pleasure. <laughs> um, good to have you back. Thanks for showing up to help us cap off the kind of myth series that we've done. But it ended up being an important series as... Most people saw uh, with the episodes we did with Wayne McCroy uh, and Jason, uh, we, we the three of us felt like we hit bedrock. We found the source for so much of the nonsense uh, in our world and the big dividing lines that have changed the way we used to live um, September to the way we live now. But anyhow, um, Jason, why don't you take it away? You are correct about things being the bedrock and also how these things are not taught properly anymore. This is a discussion that we've had multiple times. And before I get in 
with the information on Joseph John Campbell and the Hero with a Thousand Faces, why don't you give a brief mention on the two PhD people who commented on last episode? Well, you know, when you're dealing on social media, it's sometimes very difficult to know if it's just a bot coming to stir the pot or it's a sock puppet channel, um, which could have been the case on one of these. Um, I removed them because I thought there was a good chance. I'm just not sure um, the other one was there. These were people who contacted me on the tail of uh, the myth journey that we laid down, relating it to baby Jessica, other things like that, um, to show the source of where this stuff comes from. And one of the people said they'd been studying it for 50 years um, and that I was a complete jackass and had no clue. And how in the hell could I possibly try to tie myth to nature? Um, I was a bit stunned to say the least, but it goes to show you um, what happens in our world. We learn things, we go to school, um, but at no time are we ever encouraged to think on our own, to, to challenge what's put before us. And the only way that, that we deliver the things that we do here is by simply doing that, by challenging things that are supposed to be unchallengeable. And by the way, there's not a damn thing in this world that should not be challenged, not a single thing, but there's all that. And for anyone who's still being a closed-minded ding-dong about why we're discussing this, that is the perfect example of why we're discussing this. People who are PhDs in this subject matter should not be getting so easily confused. And that's the problem. Things are not properly taught these days. But anyway. The need to defend, right? So it's, I'm fond of saying that the, the higher the education, the deeper the indoctrination. That there's a need to defend anytime there's a challenge to these things that they're now an expert in. So it's going to be, um, you're going to see that a lot. Yes, indeed. So we are talking about Joseph John Campbell. He lived from March 26th, 1904 until October 30th, 1987. He was an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College, who worked in comparative mythology and comparative religion. His work covers many aspects of the human experience. Campbell's most well-known work is his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, published in 1949. In this book, he discusses his theory of the journey of the archetypal hero that is shared by the world's mythologies that he termed the monomyth. Since the publication of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell's theory has been applied by a wide variety of modern writers and artists. His philosophy has been summarized by his own often-repeated phrase, follow your bliss. He gained recognition in Hollywood when George Lucas credited Campbell's work as influencing his Star Wars saga. Yeah, you think? <laughs> um, so Campbell appears to be the first guy uh, in the modern era who came and showed uh, that there's nothing new under the sun in all the storylines. You know, you ever wonder why when you're watching the news, it's just the same damn thing over and over and over with a slightly different cast of characters and maybe the circumstances have been tweaked? Well, what we're going to lay down here uh, shows that. It's almost like there's a computer program in some ways, um, and there's so many steps. There's so many uh, if statements, if this, then that. Uh, there's nothing more in this world, sometimes it seems. And at some point, I think Baldini is going to break down at least a handful of movies where we're going to show the hero's journey is verbatim in each one of them. So the fact that George Lucas credits Campbell, at least he recognized um, you know, what was going on there. But the truth is, is this precedes Campbell or anyone else by further than we could see backwards, because every myth that we just covered has this in it. 
Sure. And, and Campbell, in fact, wasn't the first to actually notice it. Um, Edward uh, Burnett Taylor, he outlined some commonalities as far back as like 1871. But oh, it was um, it was Campbell uh, who was the first to codify it. Right. And really and really put it, the terms to it. And uh, I find the fascinating part is that he didn't start with um, what we would consider the classics, the Iliad or Homer's uh, Odyssey. Um, he actually became fascinated with it when his, his father took him to a, a museum of natural history uh, when he was 10 years old. And he became just enthralled with the, the Native Americans uh, and how they, did, they didn't have almost any of them a writing system. And so all of their myths and legends uh, were oral traditions. And they learned these very carefully, the shamans did. Uh, and he noted some, uh, some similarities between them and began to sketch these out and, and, and to write them out in a matrix uh, and then found other Aboriginal tales uh, from across the world that were similar. Uh, and then it was, uh, he compared it uh, with the classics and that's when he began to really put together the hero's journey first in three parts uh, and then in the common 12 that we kind of know of, there was up to 17 if you get a little further in, but really the 12 steps is what we'll focus on here. You know, it's a little astonishing to have a couple PhDs show up after we cover the myth and tell me that I've been smoking peyote if I think nature had anything to do with it. But you just brought up the indigenous peoples uh, who, by word of mouth, put their teachings forward. And you know damn well where that came from. Uh, they viewed something in nature, nature validated it, and that became part of the playbook. Um, and in that, it's you could... Uh, I'm almost to the point where I'll probably start saying no person can add a true thing to this world. Uh, you can only recognize what's already here. So go ahead, Jason. In the book, Joseph Campbell explores the theory that mythological narratives frequently share a fundamental structure. The similarities of these myths brought Campbell to write the details of the structure he called the monomyth. He calls the motif of the archetypal narrative the hero's journey. In a well-known quote from the introduction to The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell summarized the monomyth thus, A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. So there it is. There's there's kind of the thumbnail outline of the hero's journey. Just so people are not confused, Jason's going to delineate the 12 stages, typically the 12 stages. That's what I accept. And by the way, I did take some time while we were doing the research for this to lock the 12 stages of the hero's journey to the sky clock. So just for people, as we get there, when you get to the death and resurrection, things like that, that would be around the 21st of December. There's your death and resurrection date, and what follows after that would be near spring. But what would you add, Baldini? I think you're, you're straight on there. And, you know, in our conversations prior to this, we discussed it, and I, and I saw a direct correlation to, to the alchemical process and the sky clock, even though, again, you're far more well-versed in those things uh, than I am, because I noted some of the, the terminology was the same. And I, and I think just uh, a note here about your the, the PhD um, de decriers and naysayers there, there's uh, a report that just came out in the last few weeks uh, that, again, um, other researchers had discovered that fairy tales, and we're going to just ignore the the great myths for a moment, just fairy tales um, are the same. They got the same elements to them. They go back over 6,000 years, the same stuff, the same elements. Um, you cannot deny that these things are all interrelated. They're all telling the same thing. Um, Campbell has got some good reasons for it, and we're going to explore those a little further. But um, I, I think that, again, uh, if you try to ignore the fact that these things are telling us many truths and truths overlaid onto one another, um, that, that you're going to miss the boat. 
Right. I would add, you know, so many people are always asking about books. Here's one. Um, uh, shoot, I've forgotten the title, but it shouldn't be hard to look up. The Mother Goose Tales um, are alchemy encodes. Um, I did research on this. There's a, what, Jason, something like two years ago when I was first looking at this. Um, but if you do a search on any of the main book purveyors for alchemy and Mother Goose, you'll get there. Um, it's, it's a bit, you know, everything we're about to cover, um, there, there's no separating this from nature. I don't give a damn what some guy who's been studying it 50 years says or doesn't say. Um, the truth of it is, if you look at something like alchemy, which you can one-to-one, everything we're going to cover here with alchemical processes, as Baldini just said, um, what alchemy seeks to do is uncover the truths, the hidden truths of nature, basically. Um, and it never oversteps what nature will allow. In other words, the natural world, which we have forgotten, mostly in the modern age, is the be-all and end-all. And here it will bind the hero's journey. Although there are some variations, we are going to do the 12 stages listed for the hero's journey. Many epic tales and modern storylines follow the structure, for it gives the story a feeling of accomplishment from beginning to end. There is a sense of satisfaction that the story has been fully explored and told end to end. Once we get through the stages, we can start to apply this to many popular stories. And we're going to, um, as I mentioned before, Baldini brought a spreadsheet that'll break down a handful or more very popular things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Matrix, all these to show. And part of what's going on here is if someone educated themselves to be very familiar with the ideas in the hero journey and the ideas that we laid down in the myth series, um, next time you watch a movie, it's just not going to be the same uh, because literally there is nothing new under the sun. The characters may change, the circumstances may be tweaked, but the overall architecture is the same over and over and over. Yeah, the story arc never really changes. The elements are all there all the time. Um, You can't get away from it. Right. Storylines that follow the hero's journey structure are often broken down into three acts. The storyline can often be said to be three smaller hero's journeys within a larger overall final journey that is completed in the end. Once completed, the story should have a sense of ending that the audience has been with the hero from the beginning all the way to the end, and once the resolution has been reached, the story is over with a sense of satisfaction of completion. You know, I was just thinking this might be part of the way uh, movies like Pulp Fiction became so big so quickly, because the first thing they did is they took the temporal timeline and they shuffled it. So your brain has to put back together the timeline in a linear fashion so you can recognize the story front to back. Um, but in that, um, it's different than, than the typical delivery of the hero's journey. So although the story is pretty much the same and you can pick the elements out, what they've done is shuffled the timeline. And I think that's what really added interest there. Yeah, I think anytime you get um, a well-told story is going to have the effect of narrative transportation, bringing um, the uh, reader or the, the observer on and, and making him identify with the heroic character. So you're not just getting knowledge, you're getting the, um, you know, the, the experience, the understanding as we um, separate those things, the, the difference between uh, knowledge, which is something that can be imparted to you, and understanding, which has to be experienced. This kind of crosses that bridge and a well-told story will allow you to identify with the hero and make it a part of you so you experience it yourself. And by the way, when we say hero in the modern era, we're also encompassing the idea of the anti-hero. Um, so often in modern, you know, common era now storytelling, uh, you're not looking at a respectable character. He's really an anti-hero. And on top of that, 
the hero's journey, <clears throat> excuse me, is a big deal. Uh, and a lot of the movies that you see today, um, the hero or anti-hero doesn't earn the right to be a hero. It just happens. But like, uh, like Captain America there, he's a guy with heart. They shoot him up with a drug. Oh, he's a hero now. So these are variations in the modern age on these ideas. And if anyone is unsure what we mean by an anti-hero, you can look to the Deadpool character as a very, very good example of this. Good point. So, Jason, you're about to outline the 12 steps. Each of the following bullet points will be one of the 12 steps of the hero's journey. Take it away, man. So we start with the ordinary world. This is where the hero exists when the story begins and is almost certainly oblivious to the adventures that are about to come. It could be thought of as a safe place, but also a rather dull one. This everyday life is where we learn details about who our hero is, their true nature, their capabilities, and what the outlook on life may be. This acts as an anchor to make the hero seem human and realistic. This also makes it that we, as the audience, can identify with the hero, and later when things start to get a bit rough, we can also empathize with the hero. In a lot of the storylines, um, if we're dealing with a hero, in some cases even an anti-hero, um, the true identity of the main character is unknown. It will be discovered later, uh, often covered. But in some respects, you could almost view it as there's a baby in the beginning or a clueless human being or an asleep human being. And by the end of the journey, that will have changed drastically. It's also important, I think, to note that um, in almost every one of these, there's a few exceptions. Um, for example, Lion King is a different one, but in almost all of them, uh, the hero begins in the ordinary world as um, sort of either abused or um, he, he's underrated. Uh, he, he's not everything that he appears to be. He has a secret identity. Right. So, Jason, step two in the hero's journey, take away the, the call to adventure. The call to adventure. The hero's adventure begins when a call to action is received. This could be a direct threat to the hero's safety, a threat to family, way of life, or even to the peace of the community in which the hero resides. It may not be as dramatic as gunshots or even an invasion, but it could be as simple as a phone call or a conversation with a particular individual. Whatever the call is, and however it manifests, it ultimately disrupts the comfort of the hero's ordinary world and presents a challenge or quest that must be undertaken. And this is going to be underscored in the next step of the hero's journey. Um, we'll get there in a second. What would you add, Baldini? Oh, I'll just say this is the first crossroad. The, the, the hero comes to a crossroad. He has to make a decision. The refusal of the call. Although the hero may be eager to accept the quest, at this stage there are fears that need to be overcome. There may be second thoughts or deep personal doubts as to whether or not the hero is up to the challenge. When this happens, the hero will refuse the call and as a result may somehow suffer. The problem the hero faces may seem to be too much to handle and the comfort of home far more attractive than the potentially perilous unknown road ahead. This would also most likely be our own response and once again helps the audience to bond further with the reluctant hero. So I'll just do, uh, I'll do a cheat clip from Baldini's work, but you can think of uh, Frodo sitting in his hobbit hole there. Um, and, and I think it's in, uh, 
maybe it's in Lord of the Rings, I don't recall, but the dwarves show up and they're telling him he's going on a journey and he's doing everything he can to say no. Uh, in the Matrix, the version of that would be, hey, Neo, the agents are here to get you. Go to that window, go outside, jump off the building onto that scaffolding. Neo can't do it. So basically the refusal to the call in the hero's journey is, I would say, 90% of the time. I don't know if you'll agree with that, Baldini. You can say what you will um, and add to it. But 90% of the time we're talking about fear. Yeah, you, you face a challenge, and that's, the, say, the crossroads. You have to make a decision. Are you going to step up and, uh, and answer the call, uh, or are you going to run away? And in many stories, there's also um, a group of people uh, who get uh, the call and only one answers, and, and the others suffer as a result. All right, that brings us up to step, where are we, four, meeting the mentor. So step four in the hero's journey is meeting the mentor. You're actually thinking of Bilbo from The Hobbit, which is my perfect example of refusing the call. Right. Because the Shire is such a comfortable, wonderful place. And why on earth would I want to leave it? Or I guess I would say, why in Middle Earth? But next we have meeting the mentor. At this crucial turning point where guidance is desperately needed, the hero meets a mentor figure who offers needed things. The hero could be given an object of great importance, insight into the dilemma being faced, wise advice, practical training, or even something as simple but important as self-confidence. Whatever the mentor provides the hero with, it serves to dispel the doubts and fears the hero has and grants the strength and courage to begin the quest. In a way, this kind of speaks to the idea of being initiated into something, right? It's a place you want to be, but you can't get there on your own. As a matter of fact, you probably don't even know what you don't know. So you have to meet that wise sage, that leader, that teacher that will show you the path. Baldini? Yeah, in addition uh, to the mentor, this is often a place as well where um, there's a prophecy involved, and there's also um, uh, a step here, if you go to the 17, of um, meeting the goddess. So in Lord of the Rings, that's going to be Galadriel in the forest with the prophecy. It's going to be uh, the oracle in the uh, the matrix so uh, a prophecy or some uh, magical element there often a goddess uh, comes into play here hand in hand with the mentor crossing the threshold the hero is now ready to act upon the call to adventure and truly begin the quest whether it be physical spiritual emotional or a mix of any of these the hero may go willingly or may be pushed, but either way finally crosses the threshold between the familiar world to that which lies beyond. This may be leaving home for the first time or just doing something the hero has always been scared to do. However the threshold presents itself, this action signifies the hero's commitment to the journey and whatever it may have in store for the future. We even have cliches that, that echo this idea. What is it? A, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Yeah, and this is often the place as well where there's a, a hard dividing line uh, between the uh, ordinary world and the magical or supernatural world, uh, where they make that step and, and truly cross over from one to another. And I think that's a, uh, an important uh, allegorical point there. Tests, allies, and enemies. Now finally out of the comfort zone, there is confrontation with an ever more difficult series of challenges that test the hero in a variety of ways. Obstacles are thrown across the path. They may be physical hurdles and or people bent on thwarting progress, but the hero must overcome each challenge that is presented on the journey towards the ultimate goal. The hero needs to find out who can be trusted and who cannot. The hero may earn allies and meet enemies who will, each in their own way, 
help prepare for the even greater ordeals that are yet to come. This is the stage where acquired skills and or powers are tested, and every obstacle that is faced helps us gain a deeper insight into the character of the hero and ultimately identify with the hero even more. And again, long before Joseph Campbell or anyone else ever recognized these truths, that there was a commonality to all these old tales, it was all in Greek myth before it was ported over to Rome. If we look at a modern movie like John Wick as a prime example, you could almost say that John Wick is playing the part of Hercules. Um, And in doing that, you're also going to say that uh, it's tied to the sky clock. I haven't taken the time, but I'm guessing that if I did, I could show uh, each of the 12 positions of the sun in the acceptable year of the Lord. After all, there is one scene where they're in a museum and there's all these old statues well, those are the Olympians, all right? There's 12 of them. But the guy up front, for some reason, well, of course, because it's John Wick, that's Hercules, and I believe he's killing the messenger there. Uh, I could be wrong. I'm reasonably sure. I'd have to look it up to be certain. But it, that is certainly Hercules, and I think he's killing the messenger. Um, so basically what, what we're telling you here is all these myths that go all the way back to what we call ancient Greece whether it existed in the way we think or not, um, they schematized aspects of nature. And since that time, not a damn thing has been changed or added. It's just been rearranged and retold time and time again. Yeah, and again, I would just add um, that while the aspects of nature are certainly overlaid there, it also, I think, speaks um, to the uh, inner parts of man and the aspects of, of man. And that's in part why uh, these speak so clearly to the soul of people and why these, uh, the, the hero's journey has uh, been such a long-standing uh, and, and uh, long-running tale. And, and it goes back again, even all the way back to the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, even as far back as we know of. Uh, these elements remain the same. And and uh, I, I think, the again, any questioning mind would have to uh, at least recognize that there's got to be a reason for that. Right. And I would also point out in the, in the case of the John Wick thing, um, by the way, it's a very damn violent movie, way too violent for my taste. But um, in the beginning, you're told that he was he wanted to get out of the underworld and he was given impossible tasks. That's the Hercules story, just to put a fine point on it. Approach to the Inmost Cave The Inmost Cave may represent many things in the hero's story, such as an actual location in which lies a terrible danger, or an inner conflict which, up until now, the hero has not had to face. As the hero approaches the cave, final preparations must be made before taking that final leap into the great unknown. At the threshold to the inmost cave, the hero may once again face some of the doubts and fears that first surface upon the call to adventure. Time may be needed to reflect upon the journey and the treacherous road ahead in order to find the courage to continue. This brief respite helps the audience understand the magnitude of the ordeal being set up and that awaits the hero. This escalates the tension in anticipation of the ultimate test and helps to put us in the hero's corner of the fight, rooting the hero on to succeed against the odds. And what this one always makes me think of is the cave on Dagobah in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I was, was going to say, it's like they, he, 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 did, he should have given a nod to Campbell because they're not even trying to hide the inmost cave because the cave he goes in is a cave. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's verbatim. It is what it is. What, what would you add, Paul Dini? Then you get Frodo in the spider's lair, right? So, uh, and also in a cave. So, um, yeah, we, we have uh, facing your, your worst fears, facing your nightmares here again. Uh, they're drugged to the crossroads, uh, but this time uh, a little bit more by choice. This is where they sort of have to stand up and uh, prepare for the next step. It's a bit ironic that in a, in a tale like Star Wars, I mean, it's verbatim, but anyhow, we're, I think this is step eight of the hero's journey, Jason, the ordeal. The ordeal. The supreme ordeal may be a dangerous physical test or a deep inner crisis that the hero must face in order to survive or for the world in which the hero lives to continue to exist. Whether it be facing the greatest fears or the most deadliest of foes, the hero must draw upon all available powers, skills, and experiences gathered upon the path to the inmost cave in order to overcome the most difficult challenge. Only through some form of death can the hero be reborn, experiencing a metaphorical resurrection that somehow grants greater power or insight necessary in order to fulfill destiny or reach the journey's end. This is the high point of the hero's story and is where everything that is held dear is put on the line. If there is failure, the hero will die or life as it is known will never be the same again. Well, you know, in the Matrix, they have the inmost cave um, and that would be the subway, right? They're underground in the subway when uh, Neo takes on the agent for the first time. Um, But I would point out, this is a bit like, you remember when I took apart that John Travolta movie? uh, What was it called? Michael. Michael. There it is. So in the John Travolta movie, Michael, John Travolta is supposed to be an angel. And what I did was I showed everybody that he's not an angel. He's an angle. He's an angle of the sun within the acceptable year of the Lord. And I broke down the movie to show you when he's at each of the 12 positions of the sun in the given months that we currently use, January through December. And in doing that, I uncovered that they, they take the signs out of order. And the reason I think that they do that is because it would be too blatantly obvious if people said, wait a minute, I just saw a crab, now I'm going to see a lion, you see. So what they do is they shuffle it around a little bit. But there was a pattern in the Michael movie. And by the way, that clip is still up on YouTube on Crow 777, where I break it down and show. And this is no different than the hero's journey, and Matrix is a good example, because you can shuffle some of these steps out of order intentionally. This goes back to the idea of, of Pulp Fiction that puts it out of order and creates the need for uh, the, the uh, observer or, or the, those being carried along the journey to p- take an active participatory role. Uh, but always uh, the ordeal is really, th- this is the, the crux of the whole thing. This is the ultimate uh, crossroads. And um, this is where the apotheosis happens uh, and where you really get um, sort of the identity through conflict. This is where the hero comes into his true true identity uh, and expresses himself with everything that's come before. So this is really the uh, the crux of the situation and everything that follows uh, is the closure to the story. So in the case of Pulp Fiction, it's kind of a clever thing that he did there because basically what he's doing is he's tricking people into participating in his film. There's a puzzle put before you and if you want to understand the film, you have to put it back together, right? Human beings think linearly, and so when the, the timeline is shuffled up, you have to put it back together. It's a pretty pretty tricky device to do that, but in the movie Michael, uh, I would estimate the reason that it's shuffled is to hide the fact that they are just basically hitting the 12 positions of the sun in the acceptable year of the Lord. And that would bring us, I think we're on number nine, Jason, the reward? Yes. 
what's interesting about Pulp Fiction is the hero of that story would be said to be the Bruce Willis character. And you actually see the ending of his story before you see the end of the movie. They act like that idea had never been put forward uh, before, but I think that's not correct because if I'm not mistaken and I can't recall, there's a pretty popular book. There's a piece of literature out there that did this. Um, I just can't recall it. I think I'm correct. I'll, I'll try to look it up. But in terms of Hollywood, you know, that was like, oh, we just learned how to make movies all over again, which is a bit much, but yeah. Next, we have The Reward or The Seizing of the Sword. After defeating the enemy, surviving death, and finally overcoming the greatest personal challenges, the hero is ultimately transformed into a new state, emerging from battle as a stronger person, often with a prize. The reward may come in many forms. An object of great importance or power, a secret, greater knowledge or insight, or even reconciliation with a loved one or ally. Whatever the treasure may be, which may well facilitate a return to the ordinary world, the hero must quickly put celebrations aside and prepare for the last leg of the journey. Now, just to harp one more time on Pulp Fiction, they do they do kind of a sneaky version of this. You know, they open the suitcase um, they, they're trying to get, and there's something glowing in it that you never know quite what it is. That was done earlier uh, in a movie called Repo, where you were never really quite shown, and then it resolves. But the point here is, it's called Seizing the Sword. Is there any way in hell this is not the King Arthur? The Sword and the Stone. Yeah, the Sword and the Stone. That's exactly what's being referenced here in that old myth. There is nothing new under the sun. Not a damn thing. And Tolkien actually did this a little bit in a clever way, so to speak, because the whole storyline is supposed to be about defeating the dragon in The Hobbit, right? Well, the dragon gets defeated a good ways into the book, but not at the end of the book. There's still a whole other section that comes after that. So he actually does something to keep your interest. It's like, oh, the dragon's been defeated, but the story is not over and keeps drawing you back in because next you have the whole problem with the dwarves and then the Battle of the Five Armies and all that, where Bilbo's character really shines through. There's a stark difference between The Hobbit, which I think I first read in sixth grade, and The Lord of the Rings, which I think I read in seventh grade. The first of those books is clearly aimed at children, uh, has a whole different sense of itself um, before he goes forward. It's almost like that idea happened and then a bigger idea grew out of it. And I know there's versions of what actually happened. But that, that's a very weird version because the first book that's always lumped in, The Hobbit, almost bears no relationship to the books that follow. And by the way, for anyone who wants to count the ways, there is a reason the second book is called The Two Towers. The Road Back. This stage in the hero's journey represents a reverse echo of the call to adventure in which the hero had to cross the first threshold. Now, the hero must return home with the earned reward, but this time, the anticipation of danger is replaced with that of acclaim, and perhaps some sort of vindication, absolution, or even exoneration. But the hero's journey is not yet over, and the hero may still need one last push back into the ordinary world. The moment before the hero finally commits to the last stage of the journey may be a moment in which a choice must be made between personal objectives and that of a higher cause. Just when you thought it was over, it ain't over. <laughs> the Matrix is a good example of these being kind of shuffled and ganged together from the point where Neo's underground in the cave and starts to take on Smith. Um, it'll culminate in the next bullet point. But what would you add here, Baldini? 
really not not a lot here other than um, you will usually find uh, that this is a, a secondary crossroads uh, once the identity of the hero is revealed uh, through the apotheosis um, when he gets the goes through the ordeal and, and the reward sort of that those two combined this is the real the first test of the new identity uh, and usually brings with it uh, some crisis or or temptation uh, to try to test or lead him off track uh, with these newfound powers gifts or so I, I just got to ask a question here. So if you were like some big wig director or some Hollywood person responsible for actually creating the films or writing the scripts, if that was me and knowing everything that I know, having done all this, my main goal would be to see if I could break the hero's journey. Could I write a different tale? Could I write a tale that I can't correlate to all these other things that have been told over and over and over again. I mean, am I wrong here? How come nobody does that? Or is it maybe maybe it is that they try, but they can't? Well, I think that the easiest way to do that would be to write it following the hero's journey, but then go back to do another draft and be like, okay, where can I change this? Where can I make this interesting? Because if you do anything that's hideously against this, sometimes things don't make sense. And the example I'm always using is the Disney Star Wars sequel stories. They're breaking the hero's journey, and it doesn't add up. The characters don't make sense. Right, so that's, that's my main point here, is the hero's journey predicated on what nature will allow, or is it just some kind of bizarre program we adopted along the way? And knowing that you can go back to indigenous societies that basically observed nature, got their myths, got their tales, got their learning that they verbally passed on, it was all ba based in the truths that nature will allow. So that's the main question here. Um, is the hero's journey tied to what nature will allow, or is it something else? To me, it's it's something that speaks um, to again to the heart and spirit of man. I mean, if you look at um, the the old tales of um, how you know the, the ideas of songwriting, right? The 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 songs that, that do best are those that either tell a story. Um, grandma and grandpa down at the old oak tree or whatever that tell a story that you can relate to uh, that kind of pull on the heartstrings or the more uh, popular ones are that you can identify with. I, me, he, she, you did this to me. Um, th that's th Those are the, the things that uh, work the best. And I think that um, from, from what I see and what Campbell argues, and, and I, I can't argue against it, it, is that these elements speak uh, directly to, again, not only the aspects of nature, but to the spirit of man and our own journey here. Uh, and it's, it is, in a way, uh, our own uh, call to adventure. Uh, are you going to uh, take these cliff notes uh, or are you going to ignore it and refuse the call? Well said. It could also be looked at as a fulfilling life too. You're a young child growing to a young man and then you're doing things as an adult to have the resolution of accomplishment as an older person. Well, in a way, you could almost view it like I could make up any old math I want, but it's not really useful math unless it all adds up in the end, right? So maybe that's kind of closer to what we're looking at. But anyhow, I think that brings us to the Twin Towers. Oh, I mean 11, Resurrection. <laughs> resurrection. This is the climax in which the hero must have the final and most dangerous encounter with death. The final battle also represents something far greater than the hero's own existence, with its outcome having far-reaching consequences to the ordinary world and the lives of those left behind. If the hero fails, others will suffer, and this not only places more weight upon the hero's shoulders, 
but in a film or television program, grips the audience so that they too feel part of the conflict and share the hero's hopes, fears, and trepidation. Ultimately, the hero will succeed, destroy the enemy, and emerge from battle, cleansed and reborn. So the resurrection in a lot of films and other things from the modern era is often implied, but in the case of something like The Matrix, most people forget Neo dies uh, in, at the end of the first movie, and he's resurrected. Um, and I think Baldini might have something to say about that resurrection, but i, I got to ask a question here since we're on the, uh, the Twin Towers number here. Do you suppose if we looked at something like the building of the World Trade Center, we could uh, associate the, the hero's journey with that narrative? I'm just asking. Do you think it's possible? I think if you gave me a minute, I probably could. It might be a little loose like some of these movies are, but I certainly think um, you could do it there. I definitely think you could do it with, for example, the uh, the nation of the United States, the corporate United States of America. You could definitely do it there, except for it would be the antihero. It would be the upside down tale. Right. I think, you're, I think you're spot on. I mean, what would you add, Jason? Well, it'd be interesting. Do we know why the Twin Towers were built to begin with in 1973, I think it was? You know, we're in hour one, and this is good information for people. And I just kind of feel like if we say Twin Tower one too many times, this content will be removed from people who Very might, good point. Yeah, might want to get Thanks. something out of it. So. so here's your homework assignment, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't join us in hour two, go look it up. Get over to hour two where free speech is still a thing. Because um, <laughs> there's no hero's journey here, man. Okay, where are we? We're, we're actually on the 12th step now, uh, the return with the elixir. I'll throw one thing back at the, at the resurrection step is that th this is, as you mentioned, Crow, this is really the big, um, th this is the big part where the hero must um, make the, that last ultimate sacrifice for something greater than himself. It's no longer about him. It is um, joining something greater than himself. And I, and I think this is really one of the key elements uh, to the esoteric or the, um, the internalized portion of this uh, is that uh, people tend to do better when they feel uh, that they're part of something greater than their own story. Well, I would also add that in almost any initiation um, for any level of thing that I've ever looked at, there's almost always a mock death and a mock resurrection. It is claimed that if you go back far enough, that the death was damn near real. Um, it, it lasted over three days. And some people didn't make it. Um, that's some of the claims. These are impossible to validate at this point, but I would point out that the initiation almost always has either a mock death and resurrection or something that's so severe the person kind of feels like they died and were resurrected. And most people kind of tend to overlook this, but even in the um, Christian world, uh, the baptism, the initiation, is literally uh, a representation of death and rebirth. Well, a lot of people like to say, I'm born again. Um, these ideas, it's like you said, there's just nothing new under the sun. It's all there is to it. But that does bring us to the 12th step, Jason. Um, and of all the steps, to me, this one is the most malleable in the modern narrative of media and Hollywood storytelling, book writing that we see. Um, as a matter of fact, in the examples that we'll probably end up laying down across five or six movies in hour two, I think I could assign this in more than one place in some of those movies. We also have the 12-step program of the Alcoholics Anonymous program. That's something else to keep in mind. There's nothing new under the sun, man. See, now that we have 12 steps, you guys feel like uh, you need to hit a meeting or we have to give something up now? Is that... Is that uh, I, I, it just makes me want to ask what month we're in. <laughs> <laughs> 
So step 12, we have the return with the elixir. This is the final stage of the hero's journey, in which the hero returns home to the ordinary world, a changed individual. The hero will have grown as a person, learned many things, faced many terrible dangers, and even death, but now looks forward to the start of a new life. The return may bring fresh hope to those left behind, a direct solution to their problems, or perhaps a new perspective for everyone to consider. The final reward that has been obtained may be literal or metaphorical. It could be a cause for celebration, self-realization, or an end to strife. But whatever it is, it represents three things. Change, success, and proof of the journey. The return home also signals the need for resolution for the story's other key players. The hero's doubters will be ostracized. Allies will be rewarded and enemies punished. Ultimately, the hero will return to where it all started, but things will clearly never be the same again. So I think there's a reason this is the most malleable step, because when we were talking before, like, you know, if you were a guy making stories, wouldn't you try to break this narrative to create something new? Well, here's the end. You know, this is the 12th step. This is what people leave the theater or whatever when they put down their books, last thing they remember. So if you shuffle that around, it would feel like something new or something different, probably. But having covered all this myth and the idea that heroes have existed in the world and that to be a hero, you have to earn it. You don't just wake up one morning and you're a hero. These ideas are getting lost in the modern era. As a matter of fact, now you hear all the time, just because someone served in the military, they're a hero. Well, I got news for everybody listening. I served in the United States Marine Corps during the first Gulf War, and I'm not a damn hero because I did that. A lot of people did that. Hundreds of thousands of people did it right next to me. As far as I know, most of them not heroes. There were some, I'll give you, there were some people who did some incredible things, and they, they deserved the merit Uh, that was handed them after the fact because of the things that they did. But this is important. In the modern era, even the idea, like, who are our heroes now? If I asked you in the world, I asked, you know, in the last episode, who are the heroes that we look up to that actually deserve that title? And it's almost like we've entered into an era of the anti-hero in a way. What would you add, Baldini? Well, um, I think the two things there is I answer that one first is who are the heroes? That's one thing I I say with great regularity is be careful of who your heroes are. I I don't think there there are any human heroes, really. People are set up as heroes and it's always a setup for disappointment. So um, uh, from from my perspective, again, the return with Elixir is is really being the master of two worlds and most people aren't even the master of themselves. Um, So I always caution people and I see this a, a lot, even with um, people who are content creators like you and that sort of thing, people get very upset. Or, or uh, let's let's uh, use, for example, um, the, the, the friend of Jason's who got really, uh, uh, really unhappy with him because you were knocking on his heroes and saying, these guys appear to be compromised, ignoring the information and the evidence of it uh, and, and continuing to hold them up as heroes. And that puts um, you at compromise uh, and and risks your own self integrity and your and your own. I mean, if you can't be honest with yourself, um, that's the worst lie, right? So my feeling is, be careful who your heroes are. Now, this you know, I this is when when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was a roadie for most of the '90s, and I ended up meeting quite a few famous people. 
And that's really where it came home to me. It kind of, in a way, it ruined entertainment for me because there were certain people, certain musicians that I had built up over a lifetime. They were heroes, basically. And when I finally met them, I realized it's just a dude. And as a matter of fact, it's not a very impressive dude. And things like this, other people couldn't even string a damn sentence together. And I, I saw all these things, and it became to the point for me where that job was literally work and people that I knew seeing me go to work, Oh, you're so lucky you're going to set up pink Floyd or something like this. But I'd already gone by that. I'd already realized exactly what you said. It's almost like when it comes down to it, there are precious few heroes and actually in a sane world where someone would be called a hero and, and deserve it rightly under scrutiny, there would be precious few of them. Yeah, and I think to further the conversation, you know, we were having is that's why, um, because we've been we've had the heroes taken away from us, and there truly aren't. They're now setting up the anti-hero as the hero that we should then idolize uh, those who can be. Uh, the most sarcastic. They can be the most self-interested. They cannot give a crap about anybody. Um, sort of like the Deadpool character, right? Um, that they they become the anti-hero becomes then the hero. And um, personally, I, I reject that wholeheartedly. Um, I think it's again uh, a selling of the upside-down world, the, the the artificial instead of the natural. And I reject it. You know where we see this all the time now is in the clown show we call politics. When I was young, the idea was that it was supposed to be an adult, a serious person, a well-educated person. All these ideas wrapped up in who got those highest offices. And look at the clown show they roll out now. But what's even more frightening about it is the upside-down world has been sold. Look how many defend a red clown or a blue clown, and they're all clowns. And by the way, you had nothing to do with seating them. Nothing. You were polled, basically, and that's provable. Um, And so when you start to think of what Baldini was just saying, it's almost like the proof is in the pudding. Um, The upside down world has been sold. Just look at the clown show that is politics. Yeah, I have I have no disagreement whatsoever with that. I think that's a beautiful example because, uh, again, growing up, uh, they, they were presented as heroes, great orators, great thinkers, uh, the founding fathers, right? That they um, they really pondered these things closely, and they wrote these uh, beautiful documents that were written in prose, almost that really got down to something and and uh, gave inspiration. And now um, they're they're idolizing and selling a well recognized and notable junior congresswoman from New York, someone who doesn't know what a garbage disposal in a sink is. Now, they're, they're idolized because they can be the mouthiest, trashiest, worst possible representation of a human being. I mean, how, how does a person who says, cash me outside, how about that? And be in disgusting, a disgusting excuse for human beings, become popular and get a rap contract um, and idolized by teens? This is the kind of world we live in. And this is what makes me um, really concerned about the world that we live in. The wrapping, packaging, and selling successfully of the bizarro world, the upside-down world. And I'll tell you another thing. You know, in my lifetime, for anyone to, to merit respect, there was a few things they had to be. They had to be respectful, for one thing. There had to be admirable qualities. They had to be well-versed enough to string a sentence together that means something. And we have come so far from that. And and I'll harp on it one more time. Look at politics. Look how those people talk to each other. This is what's training the minds of people out there. Well, you don't think what I think, so I should throw a brick at your head, basically. It's beyond the pale. 
And that's why things like the hero's journey and all the myths that we just laid down over the last three or four episodes are so critically important because all these ideas harken back to a time when we weren't so low. And let me tell you something, we're all engaged in digging a hole in the basement right now. And you'd be surprised when you look around, like just the other day, I discovered, you know, the CRT, you know what a CRT is, the little cathode ray tube that the old tube TVs used to have. Do you have any idea when that was invented? Just off the top of your head? 1860, I think. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. The CRT, the cathode ray tube was invented back then. And it it doesn't take much effort for anyone to go back to the mid-1800s and look at the quality of the writing, the things that were being created by human hands, men and women, the craftsmen and craftswomen, the high level at which they're creating things. But doesn't it kind of blow your mind to understand that in the mid-1800s, the CRT had already been invented? It almost seems like there's a major piece of history that we know nothing about that should go with that story. Yeah, there's a lot of history that's lost. I, I I was shocked when I read um, letters home from people in the Civil War, and these were supposed to be farmers and the and really the lowest class of American life, and their letters are better than uh, I mean, their poetry, and they express so well areas of of the heart and the longing for home, and they are unbelievable examples of the quality of person um, that existed then. And these are these are farmers. These are nobodies. This is the worst of the worst. Uh, and, and these letters, you won't find anything like that from any um, current uh, journalist, politician, uh, orator. No anything they're not they're not even close and and uh, i constantly grieve what has been lost in the dumbing down the intentional i don't even have enough epithets for how i feel about the intentional deceptive criminal um destroying of the of the human mind um it, it is unconscionable uh, and inhuman if you read some of those things, the language resonates. And let me tell you something. I have problems with the description of the Civil War all day long. As a matter of fact, they poke you in the eye in John Wick about that one. The head guy in the world, D'Antonio or whatever his name is, the guy who's going to become one of the 12 kings of the world, points to a big old layout of the Civil War and says, yeah, that belonged to my grandfather or something like that or my father. But anyhow, that does bring our one of episode 174 to a close. Um, we hope you guys are all going to join us over at crow777radio.com. Fact is, if we speak freely in hour one, it gets censored, it gets pulled, or strikes are levied, or any number of things. And we're not playing the game anymore. We lay down as much as we can to offer value. But the truth is, by the time we're over an hour or two, we address the things that really matter in this world. And it's unfortunate it has to be that way. And by the way, if you got a problem with that, why don't you call the social media places? Because I didn't decide that things were going to be that way. Anyhow, that does bring the first hour of 174 to a close. We ho- Oh, I should also mention, if you come over to crow777radio.com, there's a shop button that's not really about making money. It's about getting t-shirts into the world with the web address so that it won't be censored because so many things are shadow banned these days. Also, Vimeo On Demand still has Shoot the Moon. After we clear the film festivals, we will probably put them on DVD so people can own their own copy. Anyhow, join us at crow777radio.com for probably what's going to shake out to be a hell of an hour or two and a capstone to the Myth series. Cheers.